I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. I'm titling the sermon on Genesis chapter 20 today, Abraham's sister and Abimelech. I should mention that uh, we will be looking at the scriptures on the topic of the Incarnation next Sunday, being Christmas Day. Um, but today we are remaining in our walk through Genesis. In Genesis chapter 20, we're introduced to a king named Abimelech. We'll explain more about that later. Uh, but many people reading through Genesis are somewhat puzzled, maybe, why Abimelech shows up. What's the point of, of uh, some of the stories about him here? Because it seems like we're... We're on this path to seeing uh, the initial fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in the birth of Isaac. And suddenly Abimelech drops in out of nowhere. And why Why do we have that? Actually, we have an account involving Abimelech here in chapter 20. Then again, at the end of chapter 21, after the account of Isaac and Ishmael, Abimelech shows up again. Why? Uh, what's the point of Moses including this material uh, I think Andrew Steinman uh, gives us a good idea of, of why this is here. He says, Framing the accounts of Abraham's sons are two encounters with Abimelech, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, and chapter 21, verses 22-34. While these may seem to be unrelated to the stories concerning Abraham's sons, they are connected to threats posed to God's promises to Abraham. In the first encounter, Abimelech takes Sarah as his wife, threatening the promise of a son to Abraham and Sarah. In the second encounter, Abraham has a well he has dug seized. In the end, Abimelech acknowledges Abraham's right to the well at Beersheba, his first permanent possession of any part of the land that Yahweh has promised him. Therefore, the first signs of the fulfillment of God's pledges to the patriarch are presented together in the same context. So why Abimelech? Basically because um, this is a way of showing uh, both um, some threats to the promises to Abraham in Abraham's immediate future, but then also how God, in uh, both cases, how God resolves these threats and actually makes things better than they were before for Abraham. Um, in chapter 20, we'll find out, of course, that's even in spite of Abraham himself and his sin. So you'll understand that, I think, a little more as we get into the text. But we're not going to read the whole chapter at the beginning. We'll work through it um, point by point. I think the big idea of the text will be helpful for you to know as we go into it, though. The big idea of Genesis chapter 20 is that God's promises will prevail against his people's fears and sins. God's promises will prevail against his people's fears and sins. Let's examine the text. First of all, verses 1 through 7, we see Abimelech confronted. Verses 1 through 7. Verse 1 says, From there... Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negeb and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, excuse me, of Sarah his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken. For she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. 
But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So this comes right after Abraham sees Sodom and Gomorrah go up in smoke, quite literally. Um, he sees that from where his tents are in Hebron, uh, up in the, uh, in the hill country of, of Judah, of what was later Judah. Now he moves his, his group, his clan, his tents. He goes south. The Negev, or today um, the Negev in Israel, is, it just means the south land. It's a typically drier area, uh, but, but Abraham goes south. And uh, for a while at least, he put down his roots between Kadesh and Shur. And he also spent some time in Gerar. As John Curid says, the precise location of Gerar is uncertain. Although biblical texts indicate that it, was, it lies near Beersheba. It's on the main thoroughfare from Canaan to Egypt, according to 2 Chronicles 14. But here's the important part. As Abraham approaches Gerar, the author reminds us of the patriarch's status. He is a sojourner or alien without the rights and privileges of the citizens of Gerar. He's just sojourning there. So he could easily be taken advantage of as a sojourner. He's not a citizen. He's an alien in a strange land. In verse 2, we see... Abraham's practice of deception revived from earlier. Remember in chapter 12, when he had gone down to Egypt because of a famine in Canaan, this same lie that shows up again in chapter 20 had already happened back then, and it had already gotten Abraham some public shame back when he was Abram and his wife was named Sarai. But when there's an uncertain situation again when there's pressure again. Abraham's old sin of deception comes back. Now, certainly, um, as we recognize Abraham's sin here, it's not for us to to think ourselves so high above Abraham in any way. He was a human. He was a sinner. He was afraid, and fear makes you do sinful things as a sinner often we should identify with him how many times have we totally known better but gone back to the same default sin because once again we're in the same pressure situation and we go back to it but it mentions abimelech here abimelech king of gerar when, when he was under the impression that Abraham uh, only had Sarah along as his sister, Abimelech, king of Gerar, it says, sent and took Sarah, meaning he took her into his <coughs> collection of wives and concubines, into his harem. This is the first time we meet Abimelech in Scripture, and this king, as we said, appears at the end of chapter 21 again. And then there's an Abimelech in chapter 26 of Genesis who interacts with Isaac, but that's probably a different man because that's probably about 90 years away from, from this time. Uh, in any case, um, it seems like, partly because of that, Abimelech may be more like a title than an actual personal name. It may have been like the title of Pharaoh in Egypt rather than a personal name. But what we do know is that Abimelech was an early Philistine ruler. Um, perhaps of an earlier stock than the Philistines who later came from Crete. I could send you to Genesis 10 and Deuteronomy 2 on that topic, but that's not to our point right now. But anyway, he's called a Philistine. For instance, Genesis 21, verse 32. Uh, so they, Abraham and Abimelech, made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. And it says there in verse 34, Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. And then in Genesis 26, when it's probably a different man, but with the same title, Genesis 26, 1 says, Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now, why would the Philistine king desire Sarah as part of his harem? 
That seems like a more a more reasonable question when we remember how old Sarah was at this time. <laughs> she was about 90 years old. Now this is, again, patriarchal days, and it seems like the total lifespan was longer, and so the aging process would have been stretched out a little differently than today. And yet still, Sarah had been well past the age for childbearing, for instance. And so different commentators scratch their heads and try to explain this a little bit. Well, why did the Philistine king, was he that hard up? Um, no, no offense to Sarah at all. <laughs> but what's going on here? This doesn't seem normal. Well, Derek Kidner has his own idea um, that, again, he's, he thinks that uh, perhaps uh, in patriarchal years, her 90 years at Isaac's birth, we could perhaps compare to our late 50s. Uh, but he actually thinks that Abimelech may have wanted her because of her wealth and for an alliance to, to cement with her brother. Um, and that seems to fit with Abimelech's further approach to Abraham for a covenant later. Uh, but I, I like what Meredith Klein says a little better. Meredith Klein says, The time is between God's promise of Sarah's imminent pregnancy in chapter 18 and the birth of Isaac in chapter 21. Here's how he puts it. Her rejuvenation is remarkable enough to revive the attractive wife problem of earlier years. And Abraham resorts to his old strategy. He says the humor of the situation fits the motif of laughter attending God's gifts of the air. I think he's on the right path there, at least partially. Something really, well, miraculous happens to Abraham and Sarah that they're even able to have a child at that age. It's very clear in the text. So it's likely, I'll just say it's likely, that along with that miracle, there's some sort of physical rejuvenation of them. And it seems likely that uh, part of that for Sarah is that she looks more like she used to look in earlier days. But again, perhaps the king also wanted her for some sort of alliance with Abraham. It's hard to say. But then again, it doesn't seem like at the beginning of this of this account that Abimelech is is being all that uh, that, that he's being all that respectful towards Abraham. He simply takes Sarah for his own. As Andrew Steinman says, unlike the Pharaoh who had previously taken Sarah in chapter 12, Abimelech does not seem to have tried to give Abraham any goods in exchange for permission to have his, his supposed sister. The threat probably comes, threat from God, probably comes not only because of potential adultery, but also because Abimelech appears simply to have used his high position to commandeer the woman. So, God steps in. Abraham goes back to his old sin of not trusting God and his promises that he will bless those who bless Abraham and curse those who curse him. Abraham is not thinking about God's promises when he really should be. This is within a year of when God said, Isaac's going to be born. But Abraham's in sin, just, just in fear and deception. Abimelech high-handedly just takes Sarah for his own. Later we find out that God immediately intervened so that the king wouldn't touch Sarah at all. But she's in his household. And then God comes to Abimelech in a dream by night and tells him, you're dead. Behold, look, pay attention, you're a dead man. That gets his attention. And we, we read all this, of course, a moment ago. He said, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Abimelech, having, not having approached her, he's, he says, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Right from the beginning, he realizes God is threatening him and all that is his. God's threatening Abimelech's people with death on account of Sarah. And so Abimelech says, look, we're at... We're innocent. At least I'm innocent in the sense that I didn't know she was a man's wife. She lied to me, and so did her husband. He said, she's my sister, and she backed him up. He's my brother. 
And then God acknowledges, yes, at least in regard to that specific point, that she's a married woman. Yes, I know you didn't know. Um, Abimelech had said, in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I've done this. God said in the dream, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. It still would have been a horrible thing, even if you didn't realize that she was someone else's wife. It would have been a horrible thing if you had actually um, touched her. So, I did not let you touch her, God says, verse 6. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Now, there's one very remarkable thing here to me, and maybe to you, if you think about it. Verse 7. In spite of Abraham's failing here, Abraham's sin really caused this whole mess, didn't it? Right? His lie set this whole thing up. And yet, God is ensuring that Abimelech will respect Abraham as his prophet. He says, this man is a prophet and you need him to pray for you. (laughs) Because God had already sent some sort of pestilence or malady upon Abimelech and his household, as we read later in the text. The public scandal will will be rebuke enough for Abraham and Sarah, as it was in chapter 12, but God is nevertheless committed to their good. Even in this situation, he's still true to his word. God is still blessing those who bless Abraham and cursing those who curse him, isn't he? This is in spite of Abraham not deserving it. And what a wonderful picture of how God is so gracious to his people who don't deserve it. It's because of God's covenant and God's promises that God treats us the way he does. Psalm 105 seems to reflect on this particular incident and others, but especially this one. Psalm 105, verse 7, Israel, recounting their history, says... He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. God did this, though the book of Genesis, of course, testifies over and over and over to the sinfulness of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and to all their faults. Nevertheless, God protects them. He teaches them things along the way. He corrects them. But he, he protects them against any who would harm them, even kings. He rebukes kings on their account. He says, touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. So Abimelech was confronted in verses 1 through 7. Now we see Abraham confronted. Verses 8 through 13. Let's read verses 8 through 13. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. 
Abimelech tells his court, essentially, what's going on. They don't doubt him. They're afraid. And again, this may be partially explained also by what we later find out, that everyone is suffering from some sort of malady at the time. But then Abimelech calls Abraham and confronts him. And he's not exactly disrespectful, but he's very confrontational. (laughs) Because Abraham has wronged him by not telling him the truth. By actually directly telling him a lie. What have you done to us and how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. And then he said, what did you see that you did this thing? The idea is, what possible reason did we give you to act this way toward us? To draw us into this mess in the first place. So Abraham, even here, you know, he's a little, we could wish, I suppose, for a little stronger and direct uh, confession by Abraham say, saying, yes, I'm wrong. Even here, Abraham is is using some lame excuses. <laughs> I mean, he does explain why he did it, but it's still just a lame excuse. But he explains, first of all, Abraham says, I did it because I didn't think people around here were righteous at all. Uh, I, I did it because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place. That was Abraham's evaluation of, of this Philistine area at this point. I thought you all were really pagan. <laughs> that you didn't care about God's law, essentially. And because of that, further Abraham had thought, they will kill me because of my wife. <laughs> wow, what a fear to be haunted by your whole life, as apparently Abraham was. People are going to want my beautiful wife so bad, they're going to kill me to get her. But that's what he thought. And in the ancient Near East, there's even stories that we still have that sometimes that did happen. It wasn't a totally outlandish fear, totally. But notice again what Abraham's not thinking about. He's not thinking about God's promises that God's already given him that would prevent anything like this from happening. Abraham's not going to be killed by anyone Uh, Isaac hasn't even been born yet and God just promised that he would be Sarah's not going to be another man's wife but he's not thinking about God's promises he's just thinking about his own skin and his own natural fears and then Abraham adds on the lame excuse well you know I didn't exactly lie to you she's my sister and we moderns go, ew. <laughs> but it's true. Uh, she was Abraham's half-sister. She was my dad's. Well, she's my dad's daughter, but not my mother's daughter. And she became my wife. And and we, we made this agreement <clears throat> when we started sojourning from our native land that it would just be good policy for her to just give that half-truth to everybody. So... If anybody was gonna was going to make off with her as their wife, I wouldn't be getting in the way. <laughs> uh, just a comment here on uh, Abraham marrying his half sister. Steinman says, um, of course, Israel's patriarchs did marry close relatives often. It was later outlawed in the law given to Moses in Leviticus 18. But at this point, God had not spoken against it directly, although um, there's other issues with it, obviously. It was frequent among Terah's descendants, uh, Terah being Abraham's father. Uh, Abraham's brother Nahor married his niece, Milcah. Isaac married his second cousin, Rebekah. And Jacob married his cousins, his uh, first cousins, Rachel and Leah. So just keep that in mind as we think about the patriarchs. Did that complicate things for them? Oh, yes, it did. (laughs) But that was reality at the time, and the Bible doesn't try to to smooth over those things. Which, again, if it had been making up legends to fit with the later law of Moses, it would never have 
spoken this way, would it? If people were making up stories about their ancestor Abraham, which lots of unbelievers like to think of the Bible that way, if they were making up stories about their great ancestor Abraham, they would not make him out to have married his sister, which was actually against their own law in their own time. But again, the Bible is very realistic and doesn't smooth over the rough realities of of sinful people that it talks about. Here's what Matthew Henry has to say about Abraham's sin on this occasion. He says, His sin in denying his wife, as before, in chapter 12, his sin in denying his wife, which was not only in itself such an equivocation as bordered upon a lie, and which, if admitted as lawful, would be the ruin of human converse and an inlet to all falsehood, but was also an exposing of the chastity and honor of his wife, of which he ought to have been the protector. What he's saying is, first of all, that sort of a half-truth, spoken the way it was, it's just a lie. And if we said that was righteous, we would, could excuse any deception. Matthew Henry is also saying something else Abraham wasn't thinking about at all was the good of his wife and her honor and her chastity. He was just concerned about his own skin. But he goes on. Uh, he says, but besides this, it had here a twofold aggravation. Number one, he had been guilty of this same sin before and had been reproved for it and convinced of the folly of the suggestion which induced him to it. Yet he returns to it. Note. It is possible that a good man may not only fall into sin, but relapse into the same sin through the surprise and strength of temptation and the infirmity of the flesh. Let backsliders repent then, but not despair. That's a good point. It doesn't prove that a man is not a righteous man just because he relapses into an old sin. And there's hope there for us, isn't there? But there's also warning. It can happen to you. Don't let it happen. But Henry's not done. He says, number two, Sarah, as it should seem, was now with child of the promised seed, or at least in expectation of being so quickly, according to the word of God. He ought, therefore, to have taken particular care of her now. The peril that Sarah was brought into by this means, the king of Gerar sent and took her to his house in order to the taking of her to his bed. Note, <clears throat> the sin of one often occasions the sin of others. He that breaks the hedge of God's commandments opens a gap to he knows not how many. The beginning of sin is as the letting forth of water. End of quote. So Matthew Henry is also saying, this was within a year of when Isaac, the promised heir, was to be born, and yet Abraham just ignores that. And also, Abraham's sin was going to lead to really bad things happening among the Philistines and with Sarah. One sin leads to many other evils. Well, we've seen Abraham confronted. And now we see Abraham recompensed, verses 14 through 16. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone you are vindicated. One commentator was asking the question. It couldn't be that Abimelech is being a little sarcastic here, could it be? I say, of course. <laughs> Notice how he addresses, how he talks to Sarah. He says, I've given your brother this, this amount of money to show that your honor is restored. <laughs> that you are untouched. All through here, Abimelech is... He's not letting them off so easy. He's good to them, but he wants to let them know what they did was wrong. They've offended against him. 
But at the same time, the big point here in verses 14 through 16 is that Abraham is recompensed. And again, as Simon had pointed out, Abimelech had high-handedly taken Sarah. So now he makes up for that. Now, having taken Sarah and been forced by God to return her to Abraham, Abimelech finally offers him the equivalent of a bride price in animals and slaves, verse 14. In addition, he allowed Abraham to remain in his land, perhaps to keep an influential prophet nearby. Finally, he also paid an enormous penalty of a thousand shekels to demonstrate that Sarah was returned inviolate, that is, unharmed. Considering that Abraham paid 400 shekels for the cave at Machpelah in chapter 23, this was an extraordinarily large sum, a thousand shekels. Also, uh, Kurid points out that uh, Abraham, the sojourner, the alien, he's, he's now being told to settle where he wishes. It's, it, he's kind of being treated more now as if he had the rights of citizenship. So now he's in a better position than he started in. He's more secure. The king says, uh, you have the right to settle where you wish in my land. So none of this is because Abraham deserved it, but God made sure that uh, Abimelech would not do this to Abraham. And furthermore, he made sure that a greater blessing came out of the whole situation, despite Abraham. When it says, when Abimelech says these thousand shekels are a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, um, literally it says it's a covering of the eyes. And it seems to, to be saying um, this will divert, it will forestall suspicion. Um, it's saying, yes, I acknowledge Sarah's honor has been violated through this whole debacle. Now her honor is being reestablished, so everyone's eyes will be closed to what has happened, and we can move on. That's the idea. Again, Matthew Henry points out that when Abimelech paid this sum to Abraham, um, this was a good example for us in general to follow, even when we have unknowingly, accidentally done something to offend someone else. To, to wrong someone else. He says, by way of satisfaction for the wrong he had offered to do in taking her to his house, that, that's one reason why he gave this. Um, when the Philistines restored the Ark of the Covenant later on, um, they were plagued for keeping it, and so they sent a present with it. And the law appointed that when restitution was made, something should be added to it. Leviticus 6, verse 5. And it also seems... Henry says that Abimelech is giving this to engage Abraham's prayers for him. God had said, get Abraham to pray for you. He's a prophet. I'll listen to him. Henry says, not as if prayers should be bought and sold, but we should endeavor to be kind to those of whose spiritual things we reap. 1 Corinthians 9.11 Note, it is our wisdom to get and keep an interest with those that have an interest in heaven and to make those our friends who are the friends of God. Again, Alan Ross, even though Abimelech's claim to innocence was acknowledged by the Lord, it was still necessary for restitution to be made to maintain integrity before all concerned. Lastly, we have verses 17 through 18, Abimelech restored. Verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So the result of this healing seems to imply there had been some sort of sexual malady of some sort, perhaps even a disease that could have killed its victims, since God had threatened Abimelech and his people with death. But in any case, God answers Abraham's prayer for Abimelech. And Christian, remember that. Abraham, whose cowardly deception has started this whole mess, he's the one whose prayers God answers here. So remember that when you're tempted to think that God won't answer your prayers after you've sinned. Repent, and then get back to your priestly vocation of prayer. 
Abraham was still a prophet, and you're still a priest if you're a believer. If you sin, repent and move on, and don't act as if God doesn't want to hear from me now. So, so I, I, I can't pray right now. No, get back to prayer. God will answer if you've repented. Now, remember the big idea of the text that I stated at the beginning? That God's promises will prevail against his people's fears and sins. Because remember what Abraham so foolishly jeopardized by his fear here. This was within a year of Isaac's birth. Genesis seventeen twenty one. God had said, But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And then again, Genesis 18, verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That's when Sarah laughed and thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure and the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. And that's when Abraham allowed his wife to be taken into Abimelech's harem. That's when Abraham lied. He was to have a son by Sarah, and yet... Abraham's fear and sin didn't stop the Lord from fulfilling his promise. The Lord exposed Abraham, he afflicted the Philistine court, and then Sarah was back with Abraham right on time for the promised supernatural conception. Because you know what? There were no chapters originally. What's the next verse? We finished chapter 20. What's the next verse? Chapter uh, uh, Verse 1 of chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. So God's promises will prevail against his people's fears and sins. You know, we remember this a lot also at Christmas time. When you think of how messed up God's people were right up until the time when Jesus came into the world. And yet, when the fullness of the time had come, God's promises were fulfilled. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, to give us the adoption of sons. But he did this when Israel did not deserve it. So God's promises will prevail despite our fears and sins. So get with the program. Now as we further apply the text before we end, how are some ways we should apply this text to our own hearts? Well, first of all, admit that your excuses for sin always twist the truth. Abraham was really good when he wanted to at twisting the truth so it was actually a lie. But we need to admit that we're the same way. <clears throat> Our excuses for sin always twist the truth. No matter what sin it is you're excusing. When you're rationalizing to yourself why it's not really wrong for me to do this, there's always a twist on the truth in there. Well, she is my sister, sort of. Leaving out the relevant information, of course. We're the same way. How do we repeat Abraham's excuses? Well, we say things to ourselves like this. <clears throat> well, these people that I'm dealing with right now, these people won't play fair. I don't trust them. They have evil and malice in their hearts. I can tell. <laughs> As Abraham said, I, I was sure there was no fear of God at all in this place, so I had to do it. Yes, normally I shouldn't lie to people. Normally I should treat others as I would want to be treated, but this is different. You don't understand. 
These people will hurt me if I give them the chance. So surely God didn't mean that command to apply in this situation. And then the truth is, we are assuming things about people that might simply be untrue. And even if people do have evil motives and hard hearts, they're no match for our sovereign God. So we don't have an excuse for disobeying God's clear commands. We don't have to protect ourselves by sinning. God is our protector. But we repeat Abraham's same excuses all the time. How often do we conveniently focus on the depravity of the human heart, thinking about people around us, without remembering that everyone in this world is still made in God's image and shares some aspects of God's grace in common with us? In other words, how often do we paint worldly people as no better than demons? And then we use that to excuse our behavior toward them. Abraham wronged Abimelech. And we wrong others because we we just we, we paint them, make them out to be something perhaps much worse than they are, actually. Sometimes we, there's people we simply don't understand. We don't understand their particular sin, perhaps, that we know of. We know our neighbor has leftist lawn signs, and so we decide it's dangerous to be, you know, neighborly to them. <laughs> I'm not going to interact with that person. They're wicked. They're made in God's image. Don't assume things about people prematurely. And especially, don't assume things in order to justify your own sin towards people. Speaking of making evil assumptions about people, how often do we do this even toward fellow believers? It's bad enough to do it toward unbelievers, but we often do this towards each other, don't we? We're so, we're so defensive, thinking someone else is going to be out to get us. Matthew Henry again. He says there are many places and persons that have more of the fear of God in them than we think they have. Perhaps they are not called by our dividing name. They do not wear our badges. They do not tie themselves to that which we have an opinion of. And therefore we conclude that they have not the fear of God in their hearts, which is very injurious, both of Christ and Christians, and makes us obnoxious to God's judgment. Matthew 7 verse 1. He says, uncharitableness and censoriousness are sins that are the cause of many other sins. When men have once persuaded themselves concerning such and such that they have not the fear of God, they think this will justify them in the most unjust and unchristian practices towards them. Men would not do ill if they did not first think ill. End of quote. So might we do that in this church sometimes? A contention arises, and we immediately jump to a defensive posture against our brothers and sisters, as if we already know the evil in their hearts, in contrast, of course, to our own pure cause. <laughs> and then we intentionally deceive to further our cause. Maybe we slander those we don't trust by selectively sharing facts with other people we do trust. Perhaps we let those, quote, untrustworthy people believe that we're happy with them when we actually are voicing our resentment of them to other people. Or maybe we seek to embarrass people or outdo people because we view them as enemies and we've totally forgotten to love them as we love ourselves. Or perhaps we allow those that we don't trust in the church to make dreadful blunders because we're too busy supposedly protecting ourselves to protect them, to warn them about something. That's how churches implode. That's how shepherds wrong their sheep. That's how sheep wrong each other and their shepherds. That's how officers wrong each other. That's how church members wrong visitors. If we are willing to assume evil motives, to become judges of evil motives in others, we will do all kinds of evil to them. And it's not right. James 4, verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. 
The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, as the law is the one that said you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you judge the law, saying I can't, because that person's evil. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? What's another excuse we borrow from Abraham? Oh, I didn't lie. I stated true facts. Perhaps, but you knew you were leading someone to believe a falsehood by leaving out what you did. You don't need to state a blatant falsehood to deceive. Deception can be just as purposeful and just as effective by selectively stating true facts, and we all know that. So what does Ephesians 4.20 say? It says, But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Or Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. A second application, maybe it's a related one for you. Face up to your besetting sins. Apparently Abraham had not faced up to his besetting sin like he should have earlier. And it came back to haunt him. Face up to your besetting sins. John Currid comments, Each of us has deeply worn channels of a corrupt nature, besetting sins that refuse to let us go. And these sins come in cycles. They revisit us time and time again. Similar situations lead us to act in a similar vein. But, as in the case of Abraham, God continues to bring the situations upon us so that we should see our sin and that we should turn to him, that we should trust him and realize he will protect us. Such repetitive cycles highlight our besetting sins, but they also point to a solution, which is complete trust and faith in God. You know, God is not helpless in the face of your besetting sin. In fact, it's him, as Kurid said here, It is God who is bringing the same situations back into your life to get you to deal with them the right way. He works with us as his children this way. So let's pass the test and not revert again to unbelief when the pressure's on again. For Abraham, it was cowardice and deception. Do you know your besetting sins? If I... And I'm not going to, obviously, in this context, but if I asked you right now, what are yours? Can you name them? Would you be able to? We all have them, but would you be able to name them? Or, maybe you're still unwilling to call them that. And you know why? Because often we don't even know what our besetting sins are because they're still part of our trusted toolbox to deal with life. That's not a bad thing. That's my hammer, my wrench that I use for this job. That's just how I deal with life. And we don't call sin what it is. So face up to your besetting sins, as the psalmist did in Psalm 19. He let God's word address his stubborn sins. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. 
Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. A third application, and this is the well, next to last one. Know that God will defend his weak and sinful people. Know that God will defend his weak and sinful people. You saw how this happened with Abraham. Now meditate on that in regard to yourself. And be secure in your father's love. We've talked about this before, especially when we were in Genesis 12. Be secure in your father's love. He knows you're weak, he knows you're sinful, but he will defend you. He'll help you. But then don't just think about yourself. Then think about your fellow believers who are so weak and sinful. Don't despise God's weak and sinful people around you. It's so easy to do that. And you have this list in your mind. I look at this person. Oh, yeah, I know what their problem is. They still have it. And this, yep, that person has issues too. And we begin to despise them in our hearts sometimes. But Romans 14, verse 4, should stop us in our tracks. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. When you look at weak and sinful people around you, remember, they're believers. God's going to uphold them, whatever it takes. God will make them stand. So why don't you participate in what God's doing that way? And not work against it. This is why, this is another reason why Jesus pronounces woe to anyone who lashes out to harm God's saints when they're caught in a fault. And woe to anyone who would take advantage of a believer's faults. Matthew 18, when he says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And then he tells us if we have a hand or a foot that causes us to sin, cut it off and throw it away as it were. You don't want to take that to hell. But he goes on, Matthew 18.10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. He's speaking of the little ones who believe in him. Don't despise them. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. So know that God will defend his weak and sinful people. And let's view them the way God views them. Lastly, fear God, not your circumstances. We've talked about assuming the worst about people even when it's not true. But what if it is true? What if your circumstances are really bad? What if Jesus himself told you that people indeed are out to get you? What then? Then it's all right to let fear of your circumstances dictate your actions, right? No. Wrong. Because just like Abraham, you have a sovereign God who is infinitely more formidable and powerful than evil people. Because you know what? Jesus told us that, yes, in certain cases, 
People will be out to get us. Matthew 10, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. So how do you act then? He says, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. Don't be driven by anxiety and fear. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Further down in that text, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So what do you do? Matthew ten twenty six. So have no fear of them. No fear. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Remember that this Christmas season when you're around people who hate the truth and who hate Christ. Don't be afraid to speak for him, even so. Don't fear them. It's a command. Because you have a God who is omnipotent. That means he's all-powerful. That means he can keep his promises to you. And he has the hairs of your head all numbered. Just like he promised Abraham, those who bless you I will bless, those who curse you I will curse. He's promised you, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And he is working together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So so where do you fit in that picture? Well, it means you're safe. So do what Abraham failed to do on this occasion. He's a man, he was a man of faith, but he failed to live by faith on this occasion. But if we're living by faith, we will not fear our circumstances. We will fear God. Don't excuse your own cowardice by saying clearly these people don't fear God. Rather, ask yourself the question, do I fear God? God will handle your circumstances. You obey him. Let's pray together. Father, I trust we are all humbled by what your word had to say to us today. Help us to take this in the context of the, the unimaginable grace we have in Christ. Thank you that you love us not because we merit it or deserve it, but for Jesus' sake. For the sake of your covenant with us in your Son. Help us to live by faith in your covenant promises to us. Help us not to let anxiety and fear drive us to further sin. Please dig down deep in our hearts and root out the roots of sin. Root out our tendency to be evil judges asserting evil motives about others. Root out the sin of deception. Even when we, everything in us feels like we have to deceive to preserve ourselves.
root out the sin of unbelief. And Lord, we ask for those without Christ that you would show them the depth of their sin today and how much they need Jesus as Savior as well as the fact that he is ready to receive them and redeem them, cleanse them. Lord, without you we can do nothing. Please do your work in our hearts today. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.